Coming up on Leading Edge. One of the difficult things, you know, for an organization is actually to disrupt your own successful business model. To do that, you really have to rethink every aspect of it, not just translate from analog to digital. This is Leading Edge, a Henley Business School podcast. Welcome back to Leading Edge from Henley Business School. I'm Thomas Mason. In this third series, we're discussing topics as varied as when to hit the off switch if you're suffering from techno stress. Is green finance the new black? How the pandemic has caused a great reset in customer expectations and the rise of the activist leader. Today, I'm joined by Sham Manwani, who's the Executive Professor of IT and Digital Leadership at Henley Business School. He's also a former European Chief Information Officer at Diageo and Electrolux, meaning he's not only an expert in business transformation, but very useful to have around if you need someone to fix your toaster. So today, we're going to tackle the meaty topic of how to create the right kind of digital disruption. Sham, welcome. Hello, Thomas. Great to be here. Lovely to have you. Now, Sham, you've got some real pedigree in this area as you've tracked the world of IT as it's grown from being you know, quite a small silo within companies in the form of that IT department to something much more significant. And to start us off then, how would you define digital disruption? Well, Thomas, um, I'd say one thing it's not is a problem with your digital toaster. <laughs> It's more what our listeners probably have in mind, which is radical change in an industry due to technological innovation. And for many enterprises out there, it's a bit of a digital jungle. You know, it's a case of disrupt or be disrupted. Right, I see. So I think what you're saying there, digital disruption, it's that sense of shaking things up, hopefully for the better. And if we do it the right way, then that can create some pretty impressive businesses, whether they're... And the classic examples, aren't they? Netflix, Spotify, Uber. But if we can consider to, to compare it with that, then the wrong kind of digital disruption, I'm sure we can all think of those instances, can't we, where technology has got in the way. If it's those, I hope I don't sound too grumpy here, but those prompts that pop up on our computer, for example, pestering us to do something such as accept a software update. We've all done that, had that at work, and we've been trying to get on with things. Uh, and the easiest thing is just to keep postponing it, isn't it? But then inevitably it forces, installs itself at a critical moment in our work. Yes, that kind of personal disruption can be a pain. But, you know, at the fundamental level, it's actually a critical role of IT to protect you and your organization from external threats. You know, most people are are now aware of how hackers can damage organizations by gaining access to their data and systems. And also huge fines, as you know, for, for not protecting the privacy of your data. You know, so IT has to introduce the latest updates to keep you and your organization safe. Okay, fair enough, Sharm. You've, you've convinced me. Maybe I should just be a bit more cooperative. But there are some other examples, aren't there? I mean, another one. Here's another one for you. What about a printer upgrade I, I, I've had where this meant I could no longer print things out from my desk, but I had to go to the printer, touch them with my ID badge, and then hopefully coax it to print out something at that point. So I'm using the term upgrade uh, a bit loosely there. I suppose you could argue it's a plus for 
security purposes, but hardly a win for user ease and experience. I mean, have we got something going on here when it feels like with technology, sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back? Well, Thomas, it's good to hear that your personal frustrations don't obscure your view of the security advantages you know, of centralised printing. You know, like most technical services, there are pros and cons of centralization. And perhaps IT people could do a better job of explaining these. You know, but your general point about technology is worth exploring. You know, one big disadvantage of central systems has been the associated cost, time and inflexibility. Now, if you've got a stable business, those benefits, you know, that you get from centralized systems and the efficiency and the cost benefits, etc., they may outweigh the disadvantages that we mentioned. But in a world of digital disruption, there are significant challenges since enterprises want to be seen to be more agile in response to customer demands. You know, our research at Henley with McKinsey has found that over time, this leads to multiple add-ons and interfaces to central systems rather than re-engineering or replacing those legacy technologies. And the cumulative effect of this complexity in large enterprises Well, that results in the technical debt, and that weighs heavily on a company. And paradoxically, it actually leads to lower agility. I think that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Technical debt, that that phrase. So this just sense that you more and more upgrades over time. You know, you think you're improving something, but actually, if you were to break that system and start all again, you probably wouldn't design it from that point if you were going again. So Some examples there are the wrong kind of digital disruption leading to complexity and less agility. Before our listeners decide to disrupt this podcast and go and lie down in a darkened room with all my uh, tech problems, uh, tell us, please, how do we get digital disruption right? Well, I wish there was an easy answer to that one, Thomas. Well, we've got got a few minutes, so let's give it a go. Come on. Look, so as we've seen, you know, the key digital is not to keep adding new layers to your old technologies or trying to replicate your existing products and systems in the digital realm. What you need to do is actually rethink your business model and redesign your operating model. But it's a lot more difficult than it sounds. You know, as an illustration of that, how much do you know about the Yellow Pages case? Well, the Yellow Pages, I suppose I'm just about old enough to remember, you know, my parents getting a big, thick copy of this sort of doorstop publication through the door. It's been a while, I suppose, since I've reached for it since, either as a physical directory or an online one. I did get a BT phone book through the door the other day, but I have to say it was a very thin, a shadow of its former self. So it's, it seems we've kind of moved away from those those big directories. Yes, yes. Well, you're probably surprised to know, Thomas, that the last Yellow Pages book was actually produced in January 2019. So even though you haven't been pushed through your letterbox, you know, they were still printing it. I think the last one was in Brighton, actually. But you were very successful with the book. You know, they became a FTSE 100 company by producing the Yellow Pages directory. And that was an information bridge between all the small traders and consumers out there. And in 2007, their share price actually was over £6. But just six years later, the shares were suspended at less than a penny. Now, I've done some research and spoken to some Yale executives about what happened during the first decade of, of that new millennium. You know, and it's interesting to know that Yale recognized early on that digital would become important. And they created Yale.com 25 years ago, and they brought in new talent to run it. But it seems it tried to transition to digital 
without disrupting what they obviously had was a cash cow with the directory of classified listings. Yeah, I suppose it's difficult, isn't it, when, you, when you've got a successful business? Well, you know, you know you probably should go online. You know, you don't just want to kind of kill the golden goose. But your suggestion is it was the book that was making all the profits, but actually it needed a bigger injection of investment on the digital side to go to the next level. Yes, it did. It did. And it was a big challenge because, you know, Yale's success was actually built on its processes, you know, because it had to produce a totally accurate directory. And in fact, Yale was the first company to win the prestigious European Quality Award twice, won it in 1999 and again in 2004. But those great repeatable processes and the associated culture, that may have lessened the sense of urgency for a new approach to learning. And that's really required to create and transition to a new digital operating model. So effectively, it made it more difficult to rethink its product offerings from the ground up to incorporate what digital offered. Fair enough. So it's those words that sometimes are the enemies of innovation then. You're saying it failed to innovate because of its processes, too much much process, and actually hadn't got the culture right either. Yes. I mean, it, it did. It did innovate the directory. Uh, It put in images and it put in color and that led to increased revenue. But moving to a digital business model, you know, which to retain, to try and retain their dominant position in in the ecosystem of directories, that needed something more than just transferring the content to a website particularly when that information was now available via famous search engine. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that's a big mistake, I think, that sometimes these companies make. They just think they can do a carbon copy of their old product and somehow it's on, on the internet rather than reimagining it. I mean, nowadays, if I search for business, I, I do. And you mentioned a search engine, I'd probably just Google it. Sometimes that might even be directly from the Maps app on my phone. I'd, I'd never think of going to a directory per se, for a lot of things. And you're saying essentially Yale just didn't have what it took, didn't get it right to complete, compete with Google? I think uh, the answer to that is if you look at what happened in about 2009, that it actually became an authorised reseller for Google. And it's interesting that one commentary was that the once mighty Yellow Pages is reduced to giving business to the now dominant search engine. So it sounds like you're right on that point. Yeah, I think we see a similar example, don't we, in the world of news that actually the the accusation of Google is they've been piggybacking on to to other newspapers like The Guardian or The Independent. And, you know, they will create a very nice interface when you search for a news story. And it's kind of taking the traffic away from the companies who are trying to sell their own adverts. So it's interesting they ended up selling themselves to Google. And also, if you think about what Yelp did, I suppose it didn't do much with its product to introduce new comparison services that you get now, like Checker Trade or Trustpilot. So, you know, they could have brought in user reviews, feedback on businesses. You know, that would have been valuable to consumers before those Trustpilots and Checker Trades came on the scene. So really sort of reimagined what the service was a bit. And they, I don't think they did that. Yeah, it's an interesting point. You know, I wonder, did they consider those options, but did they decide to keep the book and online products the same? You know, did they, was it a conscious decision to say, we want to keep the content in both of these operations the same and not offer new services on one platform or another? As it happens, uh, at the time when the, the stock plummeted, Yelp.com was actually a growing and profitable business and, and it became the key part of the uh, restructured business and it still exists today. 
And now it does provide those comparison services that you mentioned. And it also helps businesses to set up and enhance their digital marketing. So they've moved on. So it's an odd one that they have it. We think they're still around, but they they went from being this big FTSE 100 giant, originally part of of BT. uh, And now, you know, we're talking about it in a sort of business case study sense, but could have could Yale have avoided its share price crash, do you think, and made that digital just transition quicker and easier? Yes, I mean, they had a few challenges. I think they, the investments that they made were actually in acquisitions abroad. You know, for example, a Spanish acquisition, which was described really as hugely overpriced and leading to a lot of debt. So, you know, if they'd made the investments instead into the digital world, Perhaps they could have re-engineered and reorganized it earlier, you know, but maybe it also highlights that, you know, one of the difficult things, you you know, for an organization is actually to disrupt your own successful business model, you know, and to do that, you really have to rethink every aspect of it. You know, how do I create value for stakeholders? What enhanced capabilities do I need? Not just translate from analog to digital, as you described earlier. Yeah, that disrupt or be disrupted is certainly a very valid one, isn't it? When you, we had, Apple created the iPod, but you could argue that the iPhone effectively disrupted the iPod. It killed it off because it created a new music player on a phone rather than a dedicated device. But it, you know, if it hadn't have done that, then eventually they'd have lost they'd have lost that market anyway. So yes, you've constantly got to be thinking about what the next product is. Um, branding is an element as well. I mean, I think I saw somewhere that Yell had even changed its name to Haibu at one point. There was this failed attempt to create a, a global brand, but then they had to change it back again. So where is Yell today? Is it still out there? Is it still part of the mix somehow? Yes, no, it's a strange one that you mentioned about converting to Haibu. I mean, I think that confused a lot of people when they had such a strong brand. Well, I did a Google search uh, recently for plumbers near me. And uh, first on the list was Google Guaranteed, and then some paid ads, and then followed by Trade, and then Yell.com. So, you know, it was on the, the first page of the search. And I guess ending on a positive note, Yell.com was, has been seen as a, a, the biggest UK managed digital marketing service. And, you know, it's also introduced, uh, according to its own stats, 380,000 new websites. So it, it's still out there and it's still succeeding, um, but clearly not a shadow of what it was in the in the first decade it's still that's a bit of one of these kind of digital dinosaurs maybe i'm being a bit uncharitable because i don't use it that much myself but maybe it's a bit like a yahoo you know it's it's still there on the internet but it's less meaningful for, for a lot of people and, it, and, and people are less aware of it but the they do they do go on don't they these digital juggernauts and um, one that didn't know with digital disruption was blockbuster because they were a very successful video rental store in the States, and it was over here in the UK. But then they really failed to reimagine that business for the online streaming world. Yes. Um, you know, they had the perfect opportunity to become Netbuster or something similar. Um, but they they failed to disrupt their own legacy business. And and I think, again, this was partly due to, due to it being a strong, process-driven, successful company. And it's interesting to consider what would have happened had they bought Netflix when they were offered the opportunity. Um, We can now see large banks um, buying or partnering with fintech companies to acquire the technical expertise and the entrepreneurial culture that they need. 
So ultimately, enterprises, you know, they need to align their strategy, business model, and operating model. They need to deliver value to the digital marketplace. And if they don't have those capabilities in-house, they need to have a plan to acquire these. So that's an interesting possible way of doing it. Now, you've been a CIO in major organizations, Charm. Thinking about the right kind of digital disruption then, how to get this stuff right? How do you just lead the business in the right strategic direction, but avoid what you were suggesting led to some of my frustrations there, which was just adding additional levels of complexity? Yes. And, and of course, with more and more technologies, it, it's a, a bigger challenge even than when I was uh, doing the role. You know, but I speak to a lot of IT leaders and I think the fundamentals remain the same. You, know, you have to keep the current business processes and systems robust, efficient and secure. At the same time, you have to innovate from a business and digital perspective. And that requires what we call a degree of IT and organizational ambidexterity. Oh, right. Yes, it's a, it is a strange term, but it it's uh, and it is the right hand, left hand aspect. But in a business sense, being able to exploit what you do today and explore what you're doing in the future. But one of my principles on that was um, never to do an IT transformation on its own. It was always about working with the CEO and the exec team to scope what our strategic operating model should be, and then redesigning the business capabilities alongside the IT and digital architecture. And, you know, in today's world, that doesn't have to be one huge transformation. I mentioned our research from McKinsey earlier, and one of the other findings was that digital leaders think big, scale small, release fast, and then deliver chunks of business capability. Well, that certainly is an interesting phrase you've got there, digital ambidexterity. And I suppose it's partly about knowing that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing as well. Where does this approach take you then, Sean? Well, using that approach absolutely is the connection, as you say, of the left hand and right hand of the enterprise and having different parts of the enterprise working together. And if you do that, you can develop your capabilities. You can actually increase your strategic impact. So you start off and you look at organizations. Initially, technology is an enabler of operational processes. And you know that's important from an efficiency perspective. But then you want to move it forward, particularly to get into the digital world with products and customer interaction to increase your revenue. And then for those particular organizations that are really able to disrupt the ecosystem, that's another step, again, entirely. And we've seen that, you know, in the cases we've been discussing uh, about Google and, and Netflix, how they've come in from outside and, and disrupted the ecosystem. Of course, it's a little bit more difficult for the incumbents, such as banks and telecommunication companies. But I think they very much recognize those challenges and, uh, and they are starting to respond to them. And what do you think then, Sean, executives of these companies can do to respond to some of those challenges in order to be what you're calling ambidextrous and agile? Well, I had a very interesting example of that when the COO asked me to review their IT and digital governance processes. And it was an interesting setup because the business had decided to go increasingly digital and it brought in new executives to help make that transition. And the new people were looking at this governance and they were saying, well, it's two, three months review of business IT initiatives. That's too slow. You know, we should be at least monthly, if not quicker. And so I, I did uh, some, some research and, and talked to a few people in the organization. And I found, first of all, they were using agile techniques, such as a daily scrum. So they were meeting all the different people involved in, in the development 
were meeting in terms of daily for in order to create an iterative development. But when I um, interviewed the executives, the program managers and, and the team members, I found there was actually a real disconnect because the team members felt they couldn't get the direction from the executives and decisions were too slow. On the other side, the executives weren't happy with the progress either. They felt disconnected from what was happening and they felt that these teams weren't really showing a lot of initiative. And so I thought about that, discussed it with different people and uh, eventually met the COO and, and, uh, to give him my conclusions. And uh, when I said, well, actually, I wasn't recommending that uh, the meeting should be monthly. You know, he smiled. You could see he was quite happy with that uh, result. But then the expression uh, turned a little bit uh, differently when, when I said, actually, the recommendation is to meet daily. So we actually went with that particular solution. We had governance meetings where the executives met daily. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Daily meetings and what you're calling a scrum team. Some of the other guests on Leading Edge have been saying we should have fewer meetings, particularly these online ones that they've had enough of during the pandemic or bigger gaps in between them. But I think what you're saying here with this scrum idea then is that you know, if there's a real problem that needs solving, then it is actually about getting people together and keeping going until it's sorting out and checking in and checking until you get it right that kind of iterative process sounds like it could be quite powerful in this context it was and that's a great description thomas that's exactly what what happened in this particular case Uh, we had the project teams meeting every morning as they did normally for their scrum meetings but the difference is now what they also identified what type of executive decisions they needed and that was then fed up to the program managers who met in the midday and then they converted those uh, those issues that were being fed up by the project team into decisions that would, were needed by the executives who then met late afternoon, made those decisions, and they that was fed back down the chain. So the next morning when they were doing their daily scrum, they had the answers from the executives. And the good thing about that was it, it, it didn't go on, it wasn't... An, you know, the, the process for the next two, two years, it lasted for about six weeks because by then the key decisions had been made. And importantly, the other side, each side knew how the other side needed to operate and how they operated and, and they had the confidence in each other. And, uh, you know, that, that made a big difference, I think, also culturally. And I made uh, several other recommendations for the governance, but I think this one had the biggest cultural impact. It was it was very significant. So have more meetings, but in a very focused time in a project that you're really going to achieve the results of getting all the senior people and everyone who it affects all, all in one room or all together, perhaps in the virtual world. Uh, that is a really good tip, I think, uh, for, for a focused period. Leading Edge, our podcast, we are talking about how to inspire and motivate the next generation of leaders. So how can we apply some of your other tips, do you think, to our own careers and professional development? Yes. Well, you know, as I hope we've got across today in this discussion, Thomas, that, you know, that old world of middle managers throwing a requirement over the fence to IT, you then lob a system yeah. to the users, you know, that that's not the right approach in the digital world. You know, it's all about combining people, process and technology into business capabilities. And that requires more of a collaborative approach and different skill sets. And it very much fits with some research that I did for the European Commission, where we identified the skills of digital leaders. So my recommendation is that aspiring business leaders should educate themselves on the 
First of all, on the IT operational needs, you know, such as those software updates we talked about and the issues associated with that, but especially the digital innovation opportunities. And that involves looking at how the customer journey can change, for example, in, in the digital world, as we saw again in, in the cases that we, uh, we discussed. And in that way, you become an ally of the IT group and you work together to make a real difference within the enterprise. Uh, for example, you might take on a super user role, which I believe Thomas, you you had yourself uh, in the, in the past. Yeah, no, I'm some. I, I I may have given the impression that technology annoys me sometimes, but I have to say uh, that's because I do get quite involved with it, and I, I am often the person who accepts those software updates before other people and can be quite good at helping people to, to navigate how to use technology. Um, it's, as a super user, it's often them saying, well, how do we do? How do we use this new tool to do what we were doing before? And you always have to kind of reverse engineer it. So, yes, certainly uh, I don't like to think I'm a one-trip pony, but I do try and help my colleagues with technology when I can. So you could call me a super user in that sense. Or even, according to one of the banks, a digital eagle soaring high, perhaps. <laughs> right, soaring high with IT, okay. Yes. But actually, you know, if you build those really great relationship skills and you have a strategic mindset, you can also become, uh, in, and many enterprises have set this up, is, is a business IT partner where you, you really act as a, a focal point connecting business and IT at a senior level. And, and I think that's a really positive step towards a, a CIO position. And uh, you'll probably sound biased, Thomas, but I actually believe the CIO is the most exciting role in the enterprise. Right. Well, yes, the chief information officer. Nice work if you can get it, definitely. But I think you, your point is a bit broader, isn't it, Sean? That it's not just the person in the C-suite. It's all of us have a role, really, whether we're super users, digital eagles. It's about really thinking that digital disruption isn't something that happens to us, but it's something we've got to get involved with, take ownership of for our organizations and reinvent them before somebody else does it for us. Absolutely. You've just uh, highlighted exactly disrupt or be disrupted. Great. And as we enter the kind of new normal now, unless we get disrupted again, uh, we move to the next stage, perhaps post-pandemic, have you learned a few tricks? That's This is what I want to ask you about. Was there one thing you discovered during the pandemic or working from home that you, you're going to keep on doing? And is there one thing you can't wait to stop doing? Well, let's uh, let's start with the stop uh, stop one. I I recently ran a, a two day virtual workshop, and, and I have to say that's something I wouldn't like to repeat uh, too quickly again. It it was necessary. And it worked and, uh, you know, it was around the topic, interesting enough, that we, we've been discussing today. It was uh, about digital enterprises. It was part of the digital apprenticeship program. And the participants, you know, were they really liked the fact that we were able to get a mix of academics, consultants and executives of speakers and, you know, interacted well. But we, you know, we missed that extra buzz that you get, you know, when you discuss a hot topic over coffee, um, and particularly, of course, in the beautiful setting of, uh, of Henley. Yes, I've been on a couple of those digital courses, and you know, you start off very enthusiastic, and it is nice. And some of the, some of the things are pretty good, like breakout rooms on Zoom, for instance. You can genuinely have a networking opportunity, but it's so easy. And it's, if it's not digital disruption, I suppose it's digital distraction. It's, it's easy to, if you're at home, to go and put the kettle on, or have an extra break, or take another phone call, or read an email. And before you know it, you know you're no longer really in the room at all. 
Well, that, that's why it's so important to keep the sessions in, interactive. And and I really benefited from the experiences of some of my colleagues at Henley. You'd done a number of these courses. And, and through that, I actually learned some new digital interaction techniques, you know, for example, different ways of polling course members. And I think I'll continue, going back to your point earlier, I will continue to use those, even in the face-to-face teaching and in the, in the hybrid uh, classes. And, you know, perhaps that's a good way for me to conclude that uh, you should never stop learning and innovating, particularly if you want to stay ahead in the digital world. Well, there you go. We've got a CIO in the room who's continuing to teach himself some, some new tricks polling away, making hybrid classes work. I think some really good tips there. Uh, Don't forget then to be digitally ambidextrous to, on the one hand, do the basics, do the processes, but on the other hand, be thinking about how you can reimagine the future of your companies and bring other people along with you. Sham Manwani, thanks ever so much for joining us here on Leading Edge. And thank you, Thomas. It's been a pleasure. Next time on Leading Edge. Techno stress is really created through that speed of communication through all of the different apps that we have. We are reachable 24-7. So how do we manage that switch off? Leading Edge is a Henley Business School podcast. This episode was written and presented by Thomas Mason. Visit hly.ac slash leading edge for more.